This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is Eric Bazilian, and you are listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. Multi-instrumentalist Eric Bazilian composed that instantly recognizable and ear-catching 1995 worldwide smash hit, One of Us. He's also a founding member of the Hooters, the first band to hit the Philadelphia stage at the 1985 Live Aid concert. Eric has co-written songs with Cyndi Lauper, Joan Osborne, Patti Smythe, John Bon Jovi, Billy Idol, Midjur, and many more. He spoke to me from Sweden. Let's listen. Eric Bazilian, welcome to Songwriter Stories. 
It's nice to finally uh, talk with you, Eric, and uh, thanks for making time for this. No problem. My pleasure. All right. Looking back at your college years at University of Pennsylvania, you're about to earn a BA in physics, and you meet a keyboardist named Rob Hyman in a synthesizer class. So how many guitarists or multi-instrumentalists do you think were in that class besides you? Um, there, it was a very small class. I think there were eight people in it. Okay. Uh, and I think most of them were, you know, players of some sort. I, rem I remember there was at least one, one guy who, uh, who played guitar. In fact, he had brought his acoustic guitar to the class, and I got there before Rob, and when Rob walked into the room, which was the first time we met, I was sitting on the floor playing it. Nice. Yep. So did you take the class to satisfy a requirement or because of strong interest, or do you remember something about the course description that, that attracted you? They had a Moog synthesizer and a four-track recording studio. Come on. It ah, could be better. There you go. Yeah. And you'd had some recording experience at home first? You know, at the time, a, a four-track recording situation was sort of beyond the reach of, of most civilians. But I had a couple of, um, you know, stereo reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, and I would bounce back and forth between them mm -hmm. or do sound on sound with one. I, I had done a fair amount. I mean, I... I hadn't spent any time in a real recording studio at that point. So at age 18, you and Rob decide to form a band, and you call it Baby Grand. When I started at Penn, Rob and Rick and David already had a band called Wax, huh. which had gone through some changes. Um, they'd, they'd had a bit of success in Philadelphia already. I'd actually seen them a couple of times, and, um, and uh, I recognized Rob, of course, as soon as he walked into the, into the class. Um, they had lost their guitarist, uh, and at the, the point which I met them, uh, the band c consisted of two electric pianos, two drummers, a bass player, and, and a singer. So no guitarist, and um, I, you know, I raised my hand, put me in. You released your first album as Baby Grand in 1978, produced by Rick and Rob, and a second one called Ancient Medicine in 1979. At this point, as far as I can tell, you weren't writing yet with the band. No, I hadn't gotten there yet at that point my first band in high school which was really a, a formative thing for me and, and a great band um the the rhythm guitarist and lead singer was the song the major songwriter in that band and um songwriting wasn't something that i had really applied myself to yet i was more into into playing guitar and into the arrangements of the songs you know the, the cool long extended instrumental breaks Mm-hmm. Well, even in the in instrumental sections, there are melodic lines, which we're going to talk mm -hmm. about. And the arrangement is part of, in my opinion, songwriting. Production is part of songwriting. Well, now it certainly is. You know, back in the day, songwriting was legally um, melody and lyric. If you walk in and you transform a song, it's completely different. But you didn't touch the melody and you didn't touch the words. But it really right. sounds a lot different. They end up giving you credit now they do back then they didn't i mean you know we'll get the girls just want to have want to have fun but that was a you know very good example of that because we totally transformed that song and you know and robert hazard remained the sole writer on it let's get into that in just a little bit so you want to describe the music on those albums because they're not available anymore right no i think on like someone has put them up on youtube um we're, we're actually talking about just putting them up because at this point no one from Arista remembers that they ever existed. I don't think they care. Um, <laughs> but the music was, we were sort of like Steely Dan on steroids. Mm -hmm. We were like a hard rocking version of Steely Dan. A lot of, um, 
uh, ob oblique and very brainy lyrics, uh, amazing chord changes, great playing. I mean, I, I, if I'd gotten paid by the note, I'd have been a wealthy man. <laughs> Before we get into the Hooters, tell us how producer Rick Chertoff, an upstart named Cindy Lauper, and her monster debut album fit into your timeline. When Rick Chertoff graduated from, from Penn, Rob and Rick uh, graduated three years ahead of me, uh, Rick decided that he wasn't a drummer anymore and that he was going to be a record producer. So he moved to New York and um, eventually got a gig with Clive Davis, a working A&R. And his first heroic act of, of A&R genius was finding the song Mandy for Barry Manilow. Which wasn't called Mandy. It was called Brandy originally. Yes, you've done your homework. You know, we, we had always been Rick's a team. Rick had always brought us in to play on on his various projects leading up to Cindy. So uh, when he when he uh, started doing Cindy's record, he decided that rather than just having uh, hand uh, cherry picking studio musicians, he wanted to have a, a team. And Rob and I were were the team. So we spent six months in Philadelphia going through a r different arrangement ideas for all the songs that, that Rick had brought in. Uh, a couple of which Cindy had written, but you know, Rick found money changes everything. He found girls just want to have fun, um, and uh, yeah, you know, we went through a, a lot of different, a lot of different ideas trying to, to find uh, the settings for those songs, especially girls. Cindy did not like girls just want to have fun in the beginning. She thought it was um, demeaning to women. Um, uh, the original version of the song, which you can find on YouTube, it was a you know a, a new wavy punky kind of arrangement and she just could not hear herself singing it and then one day we were we were sitting in our rehearsal studio um talking about come on eileen which at the time was ubiquitous you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it and that was one of those records that everyone loved you could not love that 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 track and cindy said can you make girls just want to have fun sound like come on eileen and i remember i had an 808 drum machine at the time i, I still have it actually and I, I, I turned the big tempo knob down and I changed the kick drum pattern to be like, come on, Eileen. I picked up my guitar and started playing that guitar with. And within half an hour, she'd always wanted to sing that song. <laughs> After lending a hand to help launch Cindy Lauper's career, you went back to asserting yourself as an artist. And at this point, I want to thank you in advance for making it perfectly appropriate for me to say, let's talk Hooters. That's important. <laughs> In 1980, you and Rob Hyman formed a new band called the Hooters. Who were the members? When we first formed the band, it was uh, Rob and me and David Wasicken. He was the first Hooter. When Rob and I found our drummer, that's when we became a band. Um, and then at that point, David had been playing in a band called, uh, called Hot Property. Um, and they had lost their singer and lead guitarist. Uh, and they had a couple of weeks of, of gig commitment. So I jumped in and I realized that the, the guitarist in the band and the um, bass player were a perfect fit. So we sort of took three of the members of Hot Property. And so it was uh, David Wasicken in on drums, uh, John Kuzma on guitar, and Bobby Woods on bass. The gimmicky way to describe the band would be that 80s band with the melodica and the mandolin. It was a nickname for melodica, yes. Our, our friend and uh, engineer, John Sr., uh, when he was recording our first demos, asked for a, a level on that Hooter. And, okay, now it's a Hooter. And then a few days later, it became the band name. Nice. Well, I've also seen the band described as a combination of Celtic rock, reggae, and ska. 
and folk. But listening to the songs today, um, I kind of hear a little bit of Americana maybe in there too. What would you say? I would say that we kind of helped invent Americana. I don't think that we have much in common with the bands that are considered Americana today. Some of whom I, I think are, you know, awesome, amazing. You know, mm-hmm. Jason Isbell died, doesn't get better than that. Um, but and it probably wasn't I, a term back then. No, it really wasn't. And the, th- and the thing is, I don't think we're particularly an American sounding band. In fact, a lot of people are surprised when they find out we're American. A lot of people think we're, 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 um, we're British or Irish or e- even Canadian. But, but a lot of people don't guess that we're American. Well, you started writing songs at 16, and in 1983, the Hooters entered the studio to record their first indie album called Amore. How many songs would you say you personally had written or co-written at that point when you went in that studio? Probably by the time we got it, 30, 40, 50. Okay. A lot. <laughs> in 1985, you guys make an album called Nervous Night, and you've got four singles on that album that all, all chart. And We Dance was one of them, and it went to number 21. You and Rob wrote this one. And it gets a quadruple letter score for um, alliteration with the B's in Bebop Baby. The verse lyric was one of the last things you added, according to one of your interviews. Yep, yep. Anything about that song you'd like to add? Well, you know, Rob and I had a little bit of a retreat up in the mountains. Our, our manager sent us up there for a couple of weeks, and we had my, my four-track cassette recorder, which is what we had done all the Cindy Lauper demos on, and, um, you know, a couple of guitars and a bass and a keyboard. And we spent really two weeks just going crazy, just getting totally artsy and, and, and exploring the space, if you will. And our, I think it was our last night there, um, we were walking. We, we had, every night we would go to see the, the, the band. We, we were staying at this geriatric retreat. I mean, it was like a, you know, a, um, a resort for, I think we were the only people under 60 there. <laughs> um, maybe under 70 or 80. But the, we would go to see the band every night. And the band was just so cheesy. But they were, they were awesome. I remember the bass player could not find the, the route ever. She was completely scrambling, but it was fun. And we were, we were walking back and I just said, you know, let's write a song from just a melody. Let's write a song without having instruments. And I, I think, I, I think I went da da da. And Rob went da 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 da. And then I went da 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 da. And by the time we walked, got back to our, our rooms, we had, and we danced. And uh, we, we did a demo that night, which is very different from, from the song that, you know, it was sort of Calypso-y. You know, we, we, we were still holding on to our, our ska reggae thing at that point. Um, and the verses were completely different. We had the bridge, although the lyric was a bit different, but we had the chorus. And when we got back to Philadelphia, we played everything that we'd done for Rick. He very patiently listened to all of our wacky ideas. <laughs> and then that was the last thing we played. And they said, congratulations, you just paid for your trip. Wow. At what point did the mandolin melodica intro um, 
come in and how was it born? That came later. Um, we had the bridge already. Is, and, and the mandolin intro is the same chord changes as the bridge. Mm-hmm. I hadn't used the mandolin a lot with the band at that point. Um, um, but we had one. And I, I just remember picking it up and my finger landing on that one string, the, the low, the G string, and playing that first chord and realizing, wow, that's the first chord from the bridge. And I just kept going on it. And, and yeah, it just was born that way. Well, it's so such a signature thing. Another song that I love on this album uh, went to number 18. It was Day by Day. And writing credits are Eric and Rick and Rob. Mm-hmm. Starts out with that pitch wheel on the synthesizer. Yeah. One of the coolest things about it that I want to bring up is that the first two verses have a narrow melody with a lower vocal. It's sort of in the doldrum range. Yeah. So the chorus can contrast with soaring higher notes. Mm-hmm. And then the music speaks for two measures and the vocalist sings for two measures. Yep. And on the third verse, you flip that and you break the melodic and rhythmic pattern. So the vocalist gets two measures first and then the music goes to, for two measures. That song went through so many changes. Um, it started in, in my basement uh, in Philadelphia. Rick, Rick came over, and he just wanted to make something with me based on a guitar riff. He had a very clear thing. He wanted an arpeggiated guitar thing, and that's where that da 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 came from. Um, and uh, then we brought it to Rob, and the chorus came later, but the original arrangement of that song was completely different. We had a completely different verse melody. We didn't have the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We had a, like, a, a guitar melody over that. Um, and we re- just experimenting in the studio, the tape was cut up a lot. <laughs> a lot of work went into that, a lot of pain and a lot of love. I'd like to move on to Live Aid. Okay. To paraphrase Bob Geldof's reaction in Rolling Stone to your placement in Philadelphia's opening band slot at Live Aid, who the F are the Hooters? Yeah. <laughs> that was so funny to read that. I have the DVD, and I read that you were kept off it. You sort of like expunged. Um, you were the local favorites, right? So being everybody knew you in, in Pennsylvania, that's what got you in the show? Or how did that work? We were a killer live band. Our star was just beginning to rise in the United States, and we danced head 
not quite come out, but all you zombies, even though it only charted at 57, we, we got a lot of action with that song. In fact, in some ways, that might be the definitive Hooters song, if I had to pick one, because over the course of our career, we had different hits in different countries. We never had a worldwide hit. For example, And We Danced, which was our, our biggest single in the U.S., not really, uh, it's sort of an, an, a non-starter in, in, in Germany. I mean, we end the shows with it, they love it, but people who don't know the band don't know that song, they know Johnny B. In Sweden, it was 500 miles. In England, it was Satellite. But All You Zombies is sort of the one that everyone has in common. But getting back to Live Aid, you know, I think Larry Maggot, who was the local promoter, thought it would be a cool thing to have a, a local band on the bill. And we, we, were the, we were definitely the local band at that point. Well, the performance was awesome. I still have it on VHS. And um, a lot of Detroit bands played those songs day by day and, uh, and then we danced. So I remember it being big in Detroit. Cool. Yeah. Well. Oh, you know, Detroit was great for us. I remember having, we had a great time. We had a great time everywhere, but I have great memories of playing in Detroit. Bob Geldof couldn't stop you from playing Amnesty International <laughs> and the Wall concert in Berlin, and those were even bigger. I mean, you had like, and my research is right, almost 90,000 people in Philly for JFK Stadium, and then which one had 400,000 people? Yeah, the Wall estimates were three or 400,000. I thought there were 120,000 at JFK Stadium, but <laughs> really, 90,000 is plenty. It seasons you, doesn't it? Yeah, it also scares the crap out of you. Um, we actually did a set of our own at the wall. We played in the afternoon. That's, sort, that's really what Roger brought us there for. And then he, at the last minute, he said, uh, you know, why don't you guys come and play on Mother? Here we are with five LPs and one EP on your Hooters music label for the last one. and somehow they get nine Hooters hits collections and four Hooters live albums out of that. The Hooters super hits, the Hooters hit collection, Hooters very best of, the Hooters and we danced hits rarities and gems, Hooters greatest hits, Hooters greatest hits volume two, the Hooters Hooterization retrospective, the 30th anniversary fan collection, a four CD set, Hooters best of the best. How do you get that out of six albums? I know it's crazy, isn't it? Apparently, the laws in, in, in Europe, Germany in particular, are, are different. Anyone can make a record and put it out as long as you get your royalties. Oh. That's what I've been told. Maybe that's not true, but that's, that's the, the story that, that, that we have. Yeah, we had nothing to do with that. And, you know, great. <laughs> put them out there. But it's hard to be an optimist sometimes. Well, in 2000, you did your first solo album called The Optimist. I did, yeah. I saw uh, an interview that you said this is one of your personal bests. Yeah, I, I, I love that album. Uh, it's very personal, and I, but I think it resonates with a lot of people, I, everyone who's heard it, which isn't a lot. But um, the, the whole album's a story, and it's kind of my story up to that point. I love the chord changes in Driving in England, and I love the fact that it's driving in England in an American car. Yeah. 
Started that song with a friend named Randy Cantor, who and he had the um, the title. He wanted to write a song called "Driving in England in an American Car," and um, um, we wrote the chorus together. We had some verses as well, but then it was one of these things where I, I, the album was done, and I sent it to George Marino for mastering, and I asked him for his comments on it because he always had great ones, and he said, "You know, the drum sound on "Driving in England" could be better." So I. I started pulling the thread of it and I just realized, you know what? These verses suck. The chord changes need to be better. And I, I think I didn't leave my studio for two days, just re totally revamping the song and, and re and writing those verses. And you know, it's me. I want to, you know, I want to be heard. I want to be known. I want to get high without being stoned. I want to be loved for all of I, all that I am and do all the things that I never can, et cetera, et cetera. I've always been kind of a bit of an oddball. It's a duality of being this and that at the same time. Yeah, it it really is. You know, it's kind of kind of what I am. I'm I'm that guy. I'm not this, that, or the other thing. Well, I'm mostly the other thing. <laughs> You're the scientist who writes songs. <laughs> yeah, well, so is Brian May. Right, right. In 2002, he put a second uh, solo album out called "A Very Dull Boy." Tell us about Lump of Clay. Well, you know, A Very Dull Boy was a completely different process from um, uh, the, the Optimist. The Optimist really took me five years to make between um, all the other projects I was doing. You know, I, was, I did a ton of writing and producing at that point. Amanda Marshall, uh, Ricky Martin, um, uh, uh, Robbie Williams, Billy Myers, and a lot of other stuff that no one's ever heard. Um, Whereas a very dull boy, I wrote and recorded in six days hmm. at, in my in-laws' barn in, in northern Sweden. Wow! Uh, at that point, the technology had gotten to the point where you could run Pro Tools on a laptop. It was a very rudimentary form called Pro Tools Free. You could do eight tracks, mm -hmm. and um, I had also also gotten to the point where there were all these libraries of of drums, pre-recorded drum audio. Um, and I would sit in the evening in my, in my in-law's house, we were staying, I would cobble together what sounded like a drum track for a song. The next morning, I'd go up to the barn with my guitar, my bass, my microphone, and just start jamming. And by the afternoon, I would have a, a, a chordal 
riff basis for a song, start singing, and by dinner time I had a song. That was the first two days, and then the, after that I would get two songs a day. So Lump of Clay happened because on my way up to the barn, I stopped in to say hi to my father-in-law, who, who was a potter. He was in his studio making some making mugs, which is what they, they did mostly, mugs and plates and that sort of thing. Very, very actually sort of iconic in Sweden. And um, by the time I got up to the studio, my little studio setup, I, I guess I was thinking about him with his lump of clay. And I wrote, first there was a lump of clay, added some and took some more away. And just, it's, you know, just about the whole process of creating, you know, the whole thing with Michelangelo's David. How did he make David? He just chipped away that which was not David. Very much about songwriting, too. Very much about yeah, creation absolutely. of all kinds. Yep. How about Since You Ask? Since you ask, let me refresh Since you ask, was a direct knockoff of here, there, and everywhere. You know, the, the Beatles are the alpha and the omega of, of music. And again, I did these so quickly, I didn't have time to think. It was just words that popped into my head and melodies, and it was already there. I was just finding it. I've tried to be just a rolling minstrel wherever they'll have me from the tunnels of Manhattan to the hills of Hollywood I've been on the roll and on the go in every way I could oh we've got a good thing a good thing going on that's the thing with a good thing you miss it when it's gone In 2012, you did a duo album called What Shall Become of the Baby with Mats Wester. Am I saying that correctly? Vester. The W is pronounced like a V in Sweden. Mats Vester. Yep. What was your songwriting process with Mats? Um, we would jam, and then I would start hearing words. And Mats, having Mats in the room was great. He, he's a great muse. We speak Swedish together. He was my first friend here when I met him. I learned enough Sweden to say, you know what, if I'm going to get better, I got to find somebody who will just speak Swedish with me. So that was him and his wife. But he's a great muse for me and he's a great friend. So I, would, I could tell just by his reaction if I was on the right track with the lyrics. And yeah, we just jammed those songs out. Um, Until You Dare, I'm sure you noticed that there's a, a very different version of Until You Dare on that. 
from mm-hmm. the version that, on The Optimist. And uh, I, The Optimist had just come out when we started working on that. That album was a 10-year process. Mm. More than 10 years, actually. We, we started working together, I think, in 1989. And um, he had recorded a, a track, some, some chord changes, and I was trying to find some melodies and lyrics to it. And I started singing Until You Dare over it, and I realized that I liked it better in that setting than I liked it in my original setting. Interesting. Good thing has a Celtic thing going on. Yeah, that was the last song we did for that album. And he, you know, he just wanted one more up-tempo song. And yeah, we just jammed it out. And it's sort of Celtic and sort of Swedish folk. Swedish folk is very similar to, to Celtic music in a lot of ways. Mats is, by the way, he is a Swedish folk musician. That's his background. Um, his claim to fame is that he's the musical force and Nukelharpa player, that is the Swedish key fiddle, for a band called Nordman, which which has actually had the largest selling Swedish language album of all time. I love the line about the band you started in high school with friends, because it reminds me of, you know, your start. It is totally. The band, my band was called Evil Seed. Mm-hmm. And I started it with, yeah, my friend Bernie, who was, I was at Bernie's house when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I love that album. That album is, to me, is as complete and true a story as, as The Optimist. Mm-hmm. Even though it was a collaborative album, but you know, lyrically, every one of those songs it tells a very, very basic truth. It's a great album. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of that one. Let's talk about what it was like to write with and for some other artists. On the She's So Unusual album for Cindy Lauper, you didn't have a writing credit, although you, you played a big role as a guitarist and as an instrumentalist. But on Hatful of Stars in 1992, you've got several writing credits. So um, you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, you know, Cindy, for whatever reasons, decided that um, she did not want us involved in her second album. You know, not, none of us, Rick, Rob, or I, I think she wanted to prove that she could do it herself. Um, and um, she got lucky if she had not gotten... Um, True Colors, I don't know what her career path would have been. But um, I think after that, she realized that we had, did bring something to the table. And um, yeah, we started writing songs. We spent a lot of time in, in, at her house in Connecticut and wrote, wrote a, a bunch of that album. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I, I see like five songs with your name, Rob's name, and her name at the very least. And then another, another name, Willis. Yep, Allie Willis, who just passed away. She's an iconic writer. She write, wrote September with, um, with Earth, Wind, Fire, yep. And she was one of the writers on the Friends theme. Yep. Okay. Well, let's talk about the song that uh, probably has had one of the greatest impacts in your life, which you wrote entirely on your own for a 1995 album called Relish with Joan Osborne. That's the one. Well, you know, Rob and I were, the, again, like with Cindy, we were the, the team for, for Joan's album. Uh, Rick had started his own label, and uh, Joan was his first signing, so we were the, the team. And we started writing songs, and we had written uh, uh, probably half of the album uh, by the time that 
song happened and you know the way it happened i'm sure you've you've read this it's uh, it's 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 all over the internet but um my 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 wife had just moved over from sweden she was mm-hmm. not my wife at the time and um um we had had a, uh, a session during the day and we we went home that night and we watched the making of sergeant pepper on tv and she asked me to show her how i made a track on my four track cassette recorder so I had been playing that guitar riff all day, uh, made a little arrangement based around it, and then she said, sing it, and that's what came out. And you were going for a sort of Brad Roberts, Crash Test Demi sound on the verse? Well, I had, you know, I didn't have any ideas, and then all of a sudden I heard his voice in my head singing <laughs> the opening line, if God had a name. <laughs> so I hit record and started singing like Brad Roberts, and that's what came out. And, uh, you know, that... That demo is on The Optimist. It's a hidden track after the, so- the song The Optimist. I actually have a recording of Brad Roberts singing it. Oh. He came down and, uh, and recorded it for me because I, I really wanted to hear it. It was some, some it's extreme wish fulfillment. To me, that might be the definitive version of the song. Well, it was all over the radio. It went to number four on the Billboard Hot 100. It was covered by countless artists. And um, it was covered by Prince and... Dr. Evil and the Spy Who Loved, Who Shagged Me. So that's pretty good. That was the two best placements that song has ever had. Were definitely Dr. Evil saying, thank you, I wrote that, which in 1967, he would have written it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and Jim Carrey singing it in uh, God Almighty and Tom Cruise singing it in uh, Vanilla Sky. There was a movie that Bruce Willis sang it in, but... Uh, apparently people laughed at the screening, so they took it out. And listeners have different reasons for being attracted to songs with God in them. Uh, Wesley Stace told me essentially that God as a concept works in writing and music because we all know what God represents, even though it represents, represents different things to different people. Right. I like that too. Yep. Because some people thought this should be banned, which was ridiculous. Oh, you know what? There was one one group that said that, and, and they were called the Catholic League, and they had nothing to do with the Catholic Church. It was a right-wing political organization. It's funny because, because a week earlier, Rush Limbaugh had said that it was a great song and a great example for the youth of America. <laughs> do you want to describe the differences between your demo and Joan Osborne's version? Well, in principle, they're, they're very similar. You know, they start with the guitar riff, and um, let's see, I played the exact same guitar part on on both. Um, the only real difference in the arrangement is that on my demo, I had a little instrumental bridge that was sort of like very beatly, kind of I am the walrus. Nobody calling on the phone. Except for the only in Rome. And um, on the, the Joan version, we, we just played a, a pre-chorus and a chorus as a guitar solo. But otherwise, it's, yeah, it's pretty much the same. My other favorite song on that album is Right Hand Man, which you co-wrote with Captain Beefheart, Rick, Rob, and Joan. Seems to be very cleverly written in 7-8 time, but the drums play a straight driving rock beat 
through 14 beats so that every other measure, the kick and snare are on opposite beats. Yeah. And the bass and the vocal also overlap their phrases unexpectedly. Yep. And it manages to be very loud and in-your-face and repetitious, but never boring. And I love it. be about a sex toy i don't know what it's about i don't think joan knows what it's about okay um i mean there's obviously some sort of an encounter happening here because something about her panties in a wad mm-hmm. um but um whatever the story is it's a it sounds cool it's vibey and, and it's got great imagery all the guitar parts are you yep that's all me um i played the sax solo too sweet and um i came up with the bass line too which Mark Egan played better than I ever could because he's like one of the greatest bass players that's ever lived. Um, the, the drum thing was Andy Kravitz's idea. He, he was the drummer on that entire album, except for, well, I think Omar Hakim played on one track and Rob actually played the drums on one of us. No kidding. It was just one of those things. Rob said, you know what, give me a shot. And one take, boom, that was it. Magic. During all of your Hooters days and your solo days and your duo days i mean in between every project all the time you're working with other people sure it's like a constant flow it's amazing how much you got done in a single year sometimes yep i want to bring up a few of the things that piqued my interest the first one is midge your um 1996 breathe mm-hmm. a song called fallen angel Talk now, nothing to say about what life has done to you. Cradle your young head safe in my bed, and I will help pull you through. Listen to every word I said to you, and then you'll know it's true. When you look inside.
Is that 5-8 and 6-8 time? It's 5-4, I guess. Yeah, that mandolin riff was something that I came up with on a tour bus with the Hooters. And um, we had tried to write a song to it and never, never succeeded. And Richard Feldman, who produced that album with Mitch, um, uh, brought me in to play guitars, mandolin, everything on it. And um, I played him that riff and he said, hey, let, let me see if we can fit that into a song. And Fallen Angel ended up on the record. It's very pretty. I've actually written another song to that. I've written an instrumental with a friend of mine in Danny Black. He's a great guitar player in a band called um, called um, Good Old War. Mm. And lately, he's been touring with Joshua Radin. But we have a we have a really cool instrumental piece based on that as well. Well, I think there are going to be people who don't know your career as well that are going to be surprised that you wrote with Bon Jovi more than once. Yeah, I did. It was we we spent a week. In, uh, in Dublin with De- Desmond Child writing a bunch of songs. And then um, later on, uh, John actually came to see me do a, a songwriters in the round at the bottom line in New York. And one of the um, assignments for our, the set was to perform the biggest song you've ever written, um, your favorite song you haven't written, and the latest song you've written. And I had just written a song uh, for, for my wife, for Sarah, who was pregnant with our first child. I wrote a song called Ugly. And um, which is not about being ugly. It's quite the opposite. It's about mm-hmm. being beautiful and feeling ugly because we all do sometimes. And John heard that and said, you know what? I think I could, uh, I think I could really deliver that, you know, and we rewrote some of it and ended up on his solo album. How did you come to be involved with the Scorpions? They called my manager and said they wanted to write with me. Um, Where were you in your career? This was 2003, and it was right before the Hooters had gone on, on our first tour in eight years. We took a one-year break in 1995 that ended up lasting eight years. Gotcha. And, um, yeah, they, they called, and they flew me over, and I had the best time. I, I just I love those guys. We had a blast. Now, is the music, I'm, I, I know nothing about the Scorpions, I'll readily admit it, um, but I think of them as Rocky Like a Hurricane. Is the stuff that mm-hmm. you did with them different than what would be considered classic Scorpions, or were you writing songs similar to what they were known for? In, Is that a dumb question? No, no, it's not. It's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer. I write songs the same way with everyone. I am affected by being with them, but I'm bringing myself to it because that's what I'm there for. If they if they wanted to write write scorpion songs just from their own point of view then they would write them by themselves you know my my job is to bring my perspective into it great answer i think that that intersects a lot with the scorpions because you know there's a closet hard rocker living in me (laughs) one more yeah billy idol uh very surprised to see you wrote a song with billy idol called bitter pill riding down this road like i've ridden down a million Run through every roadblock in this town I laughed at all the signs The say speed will kill you It took you to slow me down I'd forgotten how to fly I'll remember before I die It's a crooked line I'm following It's a rocky
Glenn Ballard at the time had a label and he had signed Billy and they were doing sort of a neo rockabilly thing, kind of Chris Isaac with teeth. And he brought me to LA to, to write and produce uh, with Billy. And um, we did three songs and that was the first one. I brought in my friend Glenn Goss to help me finish it. He's um, a frequent collaborator of mine. Um, I actually produced a really good track of that, but as often happened back then, it still happens, the president of the label got fired and um, the project ended in the, in the toilet. And they released another version of it uh, that Keith Forsey produced. Um, actually, I don't know if it was ever released, but they were, I know I, I have a copy of it somewhere. And then they did a version with, um, with uh, Trevor Horn, which definitely beat the version I did. And with, you know, Trevor Horn is... <laughs> It's Trevor Horn. Yeah, sure. How did you meet one of our recent guests, Wesley Stace? I first met Wesley at an event that WXPN in Philadelphia had had. Um, I didn't know that Wesley had moved to Philadelphia, but uh, I met him there, and he seemed like a very nice and intelligent guy. And then a few years later, um, I, uh, my son decided for his senior year of high school, he wanted to go to Germantown Friends School, which is where I had gone. And... Um, when I took my son to visit, the, the admissions person said, oh, by the way, a friend of yours uh, has his kids here, Wesley Stace, formerly known as John Wesley Harding. And um, a couple of days later, a copy of his, uh, his then most recent book showed up at my house, and uh, it was called Wonder Kid, and it's a great book. I've read it twice, and it should be a musical. Um, and um, I called Wesley, he called me, and we became friends, family friends, musical friends. You recently did a cover of one of his songs for his Coronavirus Covers project, and you did a really great job explaining as you went, as you added each instrument to the track. Actually, I'm going to release that on my, I have a, a new solo album that I'm going to release in a few weeks. Oh, can't wait to hear it. Yeah. I haven't done a solo record, in, you know, really since 2002. Um, I just haven't felt that the, the need to because I, I work working on so many other projects with far better singers than me, but in this quarantine time, since I'm kind of stranded here in exile here in Sweden, and I have this, I don't have my studio here, but I've got a little setup in the basement that I can do everything in. Um, so I, yeah, I've got eight songs now. I'm going to have 12 by the, in the next couple of weeks and I'm going to release it. It's called songs in the key of B. They're all in the key of B because that's my key. That's the key I sing best in. Two of the songs are in French. One, this is Jacques Brel's song. And um, I'm going to put my, my help cover on that as well because it's in the key of B. You've covered a couple of Beatles songs over the years, eh? Yeah, but the one I did of help recently was, is definitely the most epic because I totally re reimagined it. I mean, I'm, I'm do, just doing whatever I can to keep myself busy, uh, occupied, and, and having, have fun during this time. Um, I, you know, I've also had, there's a project I've been working on for seven years. There's a, um, an artist in Philadelphia named Alexis Cunningham who um, came to me when she was 21. And the last thing in the world I wanted at that point was, was to start developing a, an untested artist. But um, a friend convinced me to meet with her and I, I loved her as a person. I loved her as an artist. And um, we've been through many incarnations artistically. And uh, finally, with the help of uh, a Slovenian pr producer, friend of mine we we cracked the code and we've created alexis and the medicine and we have an album that's sitting here waiting for the right opportunity to release it this is one that i don't i don't want to just put out there because it's it's world-class music fantastic can't wait to hear it 
Bazillion, thanks for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. It was very good questions, very in-depth and insightful. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 22, with Eric Bazillion. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider reviewing us wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.